0: This podcast is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading source of audiobooks. Now, I've heard from many of you about the increasing importance of audio in your lives. Many of you have asked for more audio content from me, and that's the reason why I started this podcast. And for years now, I've been hearing from those of you who only buy the audio versions of my books. Whether you're commuting to work or running errands or working out, audio is the one form of media you can consume while getting other things done. In fact, when I really want to get a book into my brain these days, I usually buy the print or electronic edition and the audio, so I read it when I can read it, and I listen to it at other times throughout the day. It's just incredibly efficient and enjoyable. So now I understand the advantages of audiobooks, and I'm very happy to have Audible as a sponsor of this podcast. But they only sponsor this podcast if my listeners try their service. Here's how it works. If you go to audibletrial.com Sam SamHarris and become a new member of their service, the first month will be free, which means you get a free audiobook. You can cancel your membership at any time, but if you don't cancel it after the first month, you'll be able to download a new book each month for $14.95. And you can return any books you don't like and exchange them for new ones. So if you'd like to support this podcast, there are currently two ways to do it. You can give Audible a try at audibletrial.com Harris. or you can support the podcast directly through my website at samharris.org donate Welcome to the waking up podcast for today's episode I've decided to do an ask me anything podcast so I solicited questions on twitter and got some hundreds of them and I will do my best to answer as many as I can over the next hour or so and these will by definition not be on a theme how does the struggle of atheists for acceptance compare with that of women blacks gays etc how long until true equality arrives well I'm not sure I would want to draw any strict analogy between the civil rights struggles of blacks and gays and women and that of atheists. Because while atheism is, as a political identity, more or less a non-starter in American politics at the moment, which is to say that you just cannot have a political career, or certainly no reasonable expectation of one, while being out of the closet as an atheist... Nevertheless, atheists are disproportionately well-educated and well-off financially uh, and powerful. Far more than 5% of the people you meet in journalism or academia or Silicon Valley are atheists. This is just my anecdotal impression, and I don't know of any scientific polling that has been done on this question apart from among scientists where the vast majority are non-believers and the proportion of non-believers only increases among the most successful and influential scientists. But I'm reasonably confident that that when you are in the company of wealthy, connected, powerful people, internet billionaires and movie stars and the people who are running major financial and academic institutions, you are disproportionately in the presence of people who are atheists. So, while I'm as eager as anyone to see atheism get its due or rather to see reason and common sense get their due in our political discourse, I don't think it's fair to say that atheists have the same kind of civil rights problem that blacks and gays and women traditionally have had in our society. Now in the Muslim world, things reverse entirely because, of course, to be exposed as an atheist is in many places to live under a death sentence, and that's a problem that the civilized world really has to address. What is your view on laws that prevent people from not hiring on the basis of religion? Well, here I'm sure I'm going to stumble into another controversy. I tend to take a libertarian view of questions of this kind, so I think people should be free To embarrass themselves publicly, to destroy their reputations, to be boycotted. So, if you want to open a restaurant that only serves redheaded people, I think you should be free to do that. If you only want to serve people over six feet tall, you should be free to do that. And by definition, if you only want to serve Muslims or you only want to serve whites or if you only want to serve Jews, if you want a club that excludes everyone but yourself, I think you should be free to do all these things and people should be free to write about you, pick it in front of your store or clubhouse or restaurant. But I think law is too blunt an instrument, and this is not to disregard all of the gains we've made for civil rights based on the laws. But at this point, I think we should probably handle these things through conversation and reputation management, rather than legislate who businesses have to hire or serve. I think if if the social attitudes of a business are egregious, and truly out of step with those of the community, well, then they will suffer a penalty. And it's only because 50 years ago, the the attitudes of the community were so unenlightened that we needed rather heavy-handed laws to ram through a a sane and compassionate social agenda. And some might argue that we're still in that situation, I think uh, less so by the hour. And at a certain point, I think law is the wrong mechanism to enforce positive social attitudes. And, of course, my enemies will summarize this as Sam Harris thinks that it should be legal to discriminate against blacks and gays and women. Can you say something about artificial intelligence, AI, and your concerns about it? Yeah, well, this is a a very interesting topic. The question of how to build artificial intelligence that isn't going to destroy us is uh, something that that I've only begun to pay attention to, and it, it is a rather deep and consequential problem. I went to a conference in Puerto Rico focused on this issue, organized by the the Future of Life Institute, and I was brought there by a friend, Elon Musk, who no doubt many of you have heard of. And Elon had recently said publicly that he thought AI was the greatest threat to human survival, perhaps greater than nuclear weapons, and many people took that as an incredibly hyperbolic statement. Now, knowing Elon and knowing how close to the details he's apt to be, uh, I took it as a very interesting diagnosis of a problem. But I wasn't quite sure what I thought about it because I hadn't really spent much time focusing on the progress we've been making in AI and its implications. So I went to this conference in San Juan held by and for the people who were closest to doing this work. This was not open to the public. I think I was one of maybe two or three interlopers there who just, you know, hadn't been invited but sort of got himself invited. And what was fascinating about that was that this was a collection of people who were very worried like Elon and others who felt that this is uh, we have to find some way to pull the brakes even though that seems somewhat hopeless to the people who were doing the work most energetically, and most wanted to convince others not to worry about having to pull the brakes. And what was interesting there is that what I heard outside this conference, and what you hear, let's say, on edge.org or in general discussions about the prospects of making real breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, you hear a time frame of 50 to 100 years before anything terribly scary or terribly interesting is going to happen. In this conference, uh, that was almost never the case. Everyone who was still trying to ensure that they were doing this as safely as possible was still conceding that a time frame of five or ten years admitted of rather alarming progress. And uh, so when I I came back from that conference, the, the edge question for 2015 just happened to be on the topic of AI, so I wrote a short piece distilling what my view now was. Perhaps I'll just read that. It won't take too long, and hopefully it won't bore you. Can we avoid a digital apocalypse? It seems increasingly likely that we will one day build machines that possess superhuman intelligence. We need only continue to produce better computers, which we will unless we destroy ourselves or meet our end some other way. We already know that it's possible for mere matter to acquire, quote, general intelligence, the ability to learn new concepts and employ them in unfamiliar contexts, because the 1200 cc's of salty porridge inside our heads has managed it there's no reason to believe that a suitably advanced digital computer couldn't do the same. It's often said that the near-term goal is to build a machine that possesses, quote, human-level intelligence. But unless we specifically emulate a human brain, with all its limitations, this is a false goal. The computer on which I'm writing these words already possesses superhuman powers of memory and calculation. It also has potential access to most of the world's information. Unless we take extraordinary steps to hobble it, Any future artificial general intelligence, known as AGI, will exceed human performance on every task for which it is considered a source of intelligence in the first place. Whether such a machine would necessarily be conscious is an open question, but conscious or not, an AGI might very well develop goals incompatible with our own. Just how sudden and lethal this parting of the ways might be is now a subject of much colorful speculation. So just to make things perfectly clear here, all you have to grant to get your fears up and running is that we will continue to make progress in hardware and software design unless we destroy ourselves some other way, and that there's nothing magical about the wetware we have running inside our heads and that an intelligent machine could be built of other material. Once you grant those two things, which I think everyone who has thought about the problem will grant. I I, I can't imagine a scientist not granting that one, we're going to make progress in computer design unless something terrible happens, and two, that there's nothing magical about biological material where intelligence is concerned. Once once you've granted those two propositions, you now will be hard-pressed to find some handhold with which to resist your slide into real concern about where this is all going. So back to the text. One way of glimpsing the coming risk is to imagine what might happen if we accomplished our aims and built a superhuman AGI that behaved exactly as intended. Such a machine would quickly free us from drudgery and even from the inconvenience of doing most intellectual work. What would follow under our current political order? There's no law of economics that guarantees that human beings will find jobs in the presence of every possible technological advance. Once we built the perfect labor-saving device, the cost of manufacturing new devices would approach the cost of raw materials. Absent a willingness to immediately put this new capital at the service of all humanity, a few of us would enjoy unimaginable wealth and the rest would be free to starve. Even in the presence of a truly benign AGI, we could find ourselves slipping back to a state of nature, policed by drones. And what would the Russians or the Chinese do if they learned that some company in Silicon Valley was about to develop a superintelligent AGI. This machine would, by definition, be capable of waging war, terrestrial and cyber, with unprecedented power. How would our adversaries behave on the brink of such a winner-take-all scenario? Mere rumors of an AGI might cause our species to go berserk. It is sobering to admit that chaos seems a probable outcome, even in the best-case scenario, in which the AGI remained perfectly obedient. But, of course, we cannot assume the best-case scenario, In fact, quote, the control problem, the solution to which would guarantee obedience in any advanced AGI, appears quite difficult to solve. Imagine, for instance, that we build a computer that is no more intelligent than the average team of researchers at Stanford or MIT. But because it functions on a digital timescale, it runs a million times faster than the minds that built it. Set it humming for a week and it would perform 20,000 years of human-level intellectual work. What are the chances that such an entity would remain content to take direction from us? And how could we confidently predict the thoughts and actions of an autonomous agent that sees more deeply into the past, present, and future than we do? The fact that we seem to be hastening towards some sort of digital apocalypse poses several intellectual and ethical challenges. For instance, in order to have any hope that a superintelligent AGI would have values commensurate with our own, we would have to instill those values in it, Or otherwise get it to emulate us, but whose values should count? Should everyone get a vote in creating the utility function of our new Colossus? If nothing else, the invention of an AGI would force us to resolve some very old and boring arguments in moral philosophy. And uh, perhaps I don't need to spell this out any further, but it's interesting that once you imagine having to build values into a super intelligent AGI, you then realize that you need to get straight about what you think is good. And I think this, the, the advent of this technology would cut through moral relativism like a laser. I mean, who is going to want to engineer into this thing the values of theocracy, you know, traditional religious authoritarianism? You, know, you, want to, you want to build homophobia and intolerance toward free speech into a machine that makes tens of thousands of years of human level intellectual progress every time it cycles? I don't think so. Uh, Even designing self-driving cars presents potential ethical problems that we need to get straight about. Any self-driving car needs some algorithm by which to rank order bad outcomes. So if you want a car that will avoid a child who dashes in front of it in the road, uh, perhaps by driving up on the sidewalk, You also want a car that will avoid the people on the sidewalk or preferentially hit a mailbox instead of a baby carriage, right? So you need some intelligent sorting of outcomes here. Well, these are moral decisions. Do you want a car that is unbiased with respect to the age and size of people or the color of their skin? Would you like a car that was more likely to run over white people than people of color? That may seem like a peculiar question, but if you do psychological tests, a trolley problem tests on liberals, and this is the one psychological experiment where that I'm aware of where liberals come out looking worse than conservatives reliably, if you test them uh, on whether or not they would be willing to sacrifice one life to save five or one life to save a hundred, and you give subtle clues as to the color of the people involved. If you say that LeBron belongs to the Harlem Boys Choir and there's some scenario under which he can be sacrificed to save Chip and his friends who study music at Juilliard, they simply won't take a consequentialist approach to the problem. They will not sacrifice a black life to save any number of white lives. Whereas if you reverse the variables, They will sacrifice a white life to save black lives rather reliably. Now, conservatives strangely are unbiased in this paradigm, which is to say colorblind. Well, do we like bias here? Do you want a self-driving car that preferentially avoids people of color? You have to decide. We either build it one way or the other. So this is an interesting phenomenon where technology is going to force us to admit to ourselves that we know right from wrong in a way that many people imagine isn't possible. Okay, back to the text. However, a true AGI would probably acquire new values, or at least develop novel and perhaps dangerous near-term goals. What steps might a superintelligence take to ensure its continued survival or access to computational resources? Whether the behavior of such a machine would remain compatible with human flourishing might be the most important question our species ever asks. The problem, however, is that only a few of us seem to be in a position to think this question through. Indeed, the moment of truth might arrive amid circumstances that are disconcertingly informal and inauspicious. Picture ten young men in a room, several of them with undiagnosed Asperger's, drinking Red Bull and wondering whether to flip a switch. Should any single company or research group be able to decide the fate of humanity? The question nearly answers itself. And yet, it is beginning to seem likely that some small number of smart people will one day roll these dice, and the temptation will be understandable. We confront problems—Alzheimer's disease, climate change, economic instability—for which superhuman intelligence could offer a solution. In fact, the only thing nearly as scary as building an AGI is the prospect of not building one. Nevertheless, those who are closest to doing this work have the greatest responsibility to anticipate its dangers. Yes, other fields pose extraordinary risks. But the difference between AGI and something like synthetic biology is that in the latter, the most dangerous innovations, such as germline mutation, are not the most tempting, commercially or ethically. With AGI, the most powerful methods, such as recursive self-improvement, are precisely those that entail the most risk. We seem to be in the process of building a god. Now would be a good time to wonder whether it will or even can be a good one. I guess I I should probably explain this final notion of recursive self-improvement. The idea is that once you build an AGI that is superhuman, well, then the way that it will truly take off is if it is given or develops an ability to improve its own code. Just imagine something, again, that could make literally tens of thousands of years of human-level intellectual progress in days, or even minutes, improving itself, not only learning more, but learning more about how to learn and improving its ability to learn. Then you have this exponential takeoff function where this thing stands in relation to us intellectually, the way we stand in relation to chickens and sea urchins and snails. Now, this may sound like a crazy thing to worry about. It isn't. Again, the only assumptions are that we will continue to make progress and that there's nothing magical about biological substrate where intelligence is concerned and again I'm agnostic as to whether or not such a machine would by definition be conscious so let's let's assume it's not conscious so what you're still talking about something that will have the functional power of a god whether or not the lights are on so perhaps you got more than you wanted from me on that topic I like you, but as an atheist I find statism to be a dangerous form of religion and I won't paint a billion people as barbarians. Okay, well there are two axes to grind there. Well, this whole business about statism I find profoundly uninteresting. This is a a separate conversation about the problems of U.S. foreign policy, the problems of uh, bureaucracy, the problems of uh, the tyranny of the majority or uh, the tyranny of empowered minorities oligarchy, these are all topics that can be spoken about. To compare a powerful state per se with the problem of religion is just to make a hash of everything that's important to talk about here. And the idea that we could do without a powerful state at this point is just preposterous. So if you're an anarchist, you're either 50 or 100 years before your time, notwithstanding what I just said about artificial intelligence, or you're an imbecile. We need the police. We need the fire department. We need people to pave our roads. We can't privatize all of this stuff. And privatizing it would beget its own problems. So whenever I hear someone say, you worship the religion of the state, I know I'm in the presence of someone who just isn't ready for a conversation about religion and isn't ready to honestly talk about the degree to which we rely and are wise to rely on the powers of a well-functioning government. Now, insofar as our government doesn't function well, well, then we have to change it. We have to resist its overreaching into our lives. But behind this concern about statism is always some confusion about the problem of religion. Uh, And again, this person ends his almost question with, I won't paint a billion people as barbarians. Well, neither will I. And again, when I criticize Islam, I'm criticizing the doctrine of Islam, and insofar as people adhere to it, to the letter, then I get worried. But there'll be much more on this topic when I publish my book with Majid Nawaz. Um, I originally said that was happening in June. That's unfortunately been pushed back to October, because uh, it's still hard to publish a physical book, apparently. But you'll have your fill of my thoughts about uh, how to reform Islam when that comes out. What do you think of uh, Cenk, Uygur's, uh, the Young Turks' attack on you and Ayan recently? Well, I I guess I've ceased to think about it. I I pushed back against it briefly, saying on Twitter, obviously my three hours with Cenk had been a waste of time. Um, It appears to have been a waste of time, at least for him. I I think many people got some benefit from listening to us uh, go round and round and get wrapped around the same axle for three hours actually it wasn't a waste of time for him because I heard from a former employee there that uh, that was literally the most profitable interview they've ever put on their show. I don't know what he made off of that interview, but and I don't begrudge him making money off his show, obviously, but I feel that Cenk now systematically acts in bad faith on this topic. He uh, has made no effort to accurately represent my views. You know, again, it's child's play to pick a single sentence from Something that I've said or written, and to hew to the a misinterpretation of that sentence and attack me, and I think that the thing I'm I finally realized here, and this is not just a problem with Jenk, it's with you know all the usual suspects and all of their followers on Twitter. I, I've just reluctantly begun to accept the fact that when someone hates you, they take so much pleasure from hating you that it's impossible to correct a misunderstanding. That would force your opponent to relinquish some of the pleasure he's taking in hating you. This is a, an attitude that I think we're all familiar with to some degree. Once you're convinced that somebody is a total asshole, where you've, you've lost any sense that you should give them the benefit of the doubt, and then you see one more transgression from them, another thing that confirms whatever attitude in them you hate, whether they're homophobic, or they're racist, or they are they don't believe in climate change, or whatever it is, and w- once that has calcified, that view of that person has calcified in you, uh, and you see yet one further iteration of this thing, well then you're not inclined to second-guess it, you're not inclined to try to read between the lines, and in fact if someone shows you that transgression isn't what it seemed, well then, You can be slow to admit that. This is not totally foreign to me. I I notice this in myself. This is something that I do my best to shed. I think it's an extremely unflattering quality of mind. This is not where I want to be caught standing. But my opponents seem to be always standing here. And that makes conversation impossible. Okay. How did you become such a good public speaker? I have a speech class this fall, and I'm sick about it. Uh, Well, uh, I certainly wouldn't claim to think that I am such a good public speaker. Uh, I think at at best I'm an adequate one. And as I wrote on my blog a couple years ago in an article entitled The Silent Crowd, uh, I really did have a a problem with this. I was was really terrified to speak publicly early in life and uh, overcame it and overcame it rather quickly just by doing it. Meditation was helpful, but meditation is insufficient for this kind of thing. You really, you have to do the thing you're afraid of. You can't just get yourself into some position of confidence beforehand and hope to then do it without any anxiety. No, you have to be willing to feel the anxiety. And and what is anxiety? Anxiety is just a sensation of energy in the body. It, it has no content, really. It has no philosophical content. It need not have any psychological content. It's like indigestion. You know, you wouldn't read a a pattern of painful sensation in your abdomen after a bad meal and imagine that it says something negative about you as a person, right? This is a, a, a negative experience that is peripheral to your identity, but something about anxiety suggests that it lands more at the core of who we are. You're a fearful person. But you need not have this relationship to anxiety. Anxiety is a hormonal cascade that you can just become willing to feel and even interested in. And it need not be the impediment to doing the thing that you are anxious about doing. Not at all. And, and so I, I go into this in more detail on my blog, but this is just something to get over. It's worth pushing past this and not caring whether you appear anxious while doing it, just just do your thing. And you will eventually realize that you can do it happily. But, you know, some people are natural speakers, they're natural performers. They, this, is, this is what they are comfortable doing, they love to do it, they're loose, they have access to the full bandwidth of their personality in that space. And, you know, I am not that way, and even being comfortable doing it I'm not that way. It doesn't come naturally, and I'm, I'm happy I've fooled at least you. If I'm a good public speaker, it's a statement that I have something interesting to say. If you pay close attention, you'll see that I just kind of drone on in a monotone, and my, and my lack of style is to some degree a necessity because I want to approach public speaking very much as a conversation. I get uncomfortable whenever my pattern of speech departs too much from what it would be in a conversation with one person at a dinner table. Now, if you're standing in front of a thousand people, it's going to depart somewhat. It's It's just the nature of the situation. But I try to be as conversational as possible. And when I'm not, and when someone else isn't, it begins to strike me as dishonest. Yet, I will grant you that the performance aspect of public speaking allows for what many people appreciate as the best examples of oratory. So you just listen to, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. He is so far from a natural speech pattern. It is pure performance. Just imagine being seated at a table at a dinner party across from someone who was speaking to you the way MLK spoke in his speeches. You would know that you you were in the presence of a madman. It would be intolerable, right? It would be terrifying. So that that distance between what is normal in conversation and what is dramaturgical in a public speech, I don't want to traverse that too far. I'm not comfortable doing it and actually tend to find it suspect as a member of the audience. What is really entailed in Dzogchen meditation? Is it the loss of I, that is the self, or does it go beyond that? Well, Traditionally speaking, it goes beyond that in, in certain ways, but I think the, the core point is what's called non-dual awareness, to, to lose the sense of subject-object awareness in the present moment, and to just rest as open, centerless consciousness, and just fully relax into whatever is arising uh, without hope and fear, without praise and blame, without grasping at the pleasant or pushing away the, the unpleasant. So it's a kind of mindfulness, but it's a mindfulness of there being nothing at all to grasp at as self. So it's, uh, yes, selflessness is the the core insight. They don't tend to talk about selflessness. They talk about non-duality. Any suggestions or advice if I want to do two years of silent meditation on retreat? Um, Yeah, well, just don't do it by yourself. Uh, you, You really need guidance if you're going to go into... A retreat of any significant length. So find a meditation center where they're doing a practice that you really want to do, and find a teacher you really admire and who you trust, and then follow their instructions. A couple more questions about meditation. Uh, Why do we do it sitting up? If having a straight back is valuable, why not do it lying down? Well, you can do it lying down. It's just, it's harder. We're so deeply conditioned to fall asleep lying down that most people find that meditation is just a precursor to a nap in that case, uh, but it can be a very nice nap. Uh, and if you're injured or if you're just tired of sitting, you, you know, lying down is certainly a reasonable thing to attempt. I just Most people find that it is harder to stay awake, and people often have a problem with sleepiness while sitting up, so that's the reason. Uh, I haven't read any of your books, but one too soon. Does your view that there's no free will give you sympathy for your enemies? Yes, it, well, it does. I've, I've talked about this a little bit. It does. It, it is an antidote to hatred. I, I have a long list of people who I really would hate if I thought they could behave differently than they do. Uh, now, occasionally, I'm taken in by the illusion that they could and should be behaving differently. But, but when I have my wits about me, I realize that I am dealing with people who are going to do what they're going to do, and my. Efforts to talk sense into them are going to be as ineffectual as they will be, and there's really no place to stand where this was going to be other than it is. And so it really is an antidote to hating some of the dangerously deluded and impossibly smug people I have the misfortune of colliding with on a regular basis. Can the form of human consciousness be distinguished from its contents, or are the two identical? That's an interesting question. I think it's, insofar as I understand it, there are a couple of different ways I can interpret what you've said there, but I think human consciousness clearly has a form, both conscious and unconscious. When you're talking about the contents of consciousness, you're talking about what is actually appearing before the light of consciousness, that is, what is available to attention in each moment, what can be noticed. But there's much that can't be noticed, which is structuring what can. So the contents are dependent upon unconscious processes which are noticeably human uh, in that the contents they deliver are human. So for instance an example i often cite is our ability to to understand and produce language. The ability to follow grammatical rules, to notice when they're broken, all of the all of these processes are unconscious and yet this is not something that dogs do, it's not something that chimps do. We're the only ones we know to do it, and all of this gets tuned in a very particular way in each person's case. For instance, I'm totally insensitive to the grammatical rules of Japanese. When Japanese is spoken in my presence, I don't hear much of anything linguistic, so the difference between being an effortless parser of meaning and syntax in English and being little better than a chimpanzee in the presence of Japanese That difference is, again, uh, unconscious, uh, yet determining the contents of consciousness. So there are both unconscious and conscious ways in which consciousness, in our case, is demonstrably human. And I don't really think you can talk about the humanness of consciousness beyond that. Because for me, consciousness is simply the fact that it's like something to have an experience of the world. The fact that there's a, a qualitative character to anything, that's consciousness. And if our computers ever acquire that, well, then our computers will be conscious. What's your opinion of the rise of the new nationalist right in Europe and the issue of Islam there? There's a very unhappy linkage there. The nationalist right has an agenda beyond resisting the immigration of Muslims, but clearly we have a kind of fascism playing both sides of the board here, and and that's a very unhappy situation and a, a recipe for disaster at a certain point. Yeah, I think I think the problem of Islam in Europe is of deep concern now and especially so probably in France, although it's bad in in many countries. You have have a level of radicalization and a disinclination to assimilate on the part of far too many people. And it's a um it's a problem unlike the situation in the United States for reasons that are purely a matter of historical accident, but um, I, I think it's a cause of great concern, and it is, as I said in that article on fascism, it is a double concern that liberals are sleepwalking on this issue, and that to express a concern about Islam in Europe gets you branded as a, a right-winger, or a nationalist, or a xenophobe, because these are the only people who have been articulating the problem up to now with a few notable exceptions like Ion Hirsi Ali and Douglas Murray in the UK and Majid Nawaz, uh, who um, I've mentioned a lot recently. So it's not all fascists who are talking about the problem of, of Islamism and, and jihadism in Europe, but for the most part, liberals have been totally out to lunch on this topic. And uh, one wonders what it will take to get them to come around. Lots of questions here. Um, Apologies for not getting to but the tiniest fraction of them. uh, There appear to be now hundreds. So what charity organization do you think is doing the best work? There are two charities unrelated to anything that I'm involved in that I, by default, give money to uh, Doctors Without Borders and St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Uh, Both do amazing work and work for which there really is no substitute. So, for instance, when people use any of the affiliate links on my website or you see in a blog post where I link to a book, let's say I'm interviewing an author and I link to his book, if you buy his book or anything else on Amazon through that affiliate link, well, then 50% of that uh, royalty goes to charity, and, and rather often it's Doctors Without Borders or, or St. Jude's. I just think when, you, when you're helping people in refugee camps in Africa or close to the site of a famine or natural disaster or civil war. We're doing pioneering research on pediatric cancer and never turning any child away at your hospital for want of funds. It's, it's hard to see a better allocation of money than, than either of those two projects. I reject religion entirely, but I'm curious how you, with complete certainty, know there is no God. What proof do you have? Well, this, this has the, the burden of proof reversed. It's not that I have proof that there is no god. I can't prove that there's no Apollo or Zeus or Isis or Shiva. I mean, these are, these are all gods who might exist. But, of course, there's no good evidence that they do. And there are many things that suggest that these are all the products of literature. When you're looking on the mythology shelf in a bookstore, you are essentially perusing the the graveyard of dead gods. Uh, The God of Abraham has exactly that status. So it's not that I can prove that he doesn't exist. It's that it's obvious that there's no proof attesting to his existence. And when you look at the kind of wishful thinking that has propped up faith for millennia, there's every reason to think that a culture of faith is a culture of deception of children and self-deception on the part of the adults. Uh, And the one thing I, I can say with certainty is that these books show no sign of being authored by an omniscient intelligence. And that really is the only thing you need to be certain about to torpedo Judaism and Christianity and Islam. The Bible and the Quran are deeply inadequate books on every level, scientifically, historically, medically, aesthetically, ethically spiritually, contemplatively. These are just not the best books we have on any topic. Uh, They should be, if they were written by the creator of the universe. So this is Russell's teapot argument. Can you prove that there's not a China teapot circling the sun between Mars and Earth? No, you can't prove that. But is there any reason to think that such a teapot exists? No. And the burden Of proof is of course on the one who asserts this seemingly outrageous truth claim. Is militant atheism the right way to tackle growing religious bigotry? Calm reason or arrogant criticism? I don't think militant, quote, militant atheism is at all arrogant. I think really uh, what you have witnessed is the consequences of being calmly reasonable in the face of religious superstition and demagoguery what you what you immediately get back are charges of arrogance there's nothing arrogant about saying that the quran expresses a thorough intolerance of infidels and is therefore divisive uh, that's just a fact that's a calmly reasonable thing to say about the quran and so it goes for everything else i or richard dawkins or christopher hitchens or daniel dennett or Ion Hersey Ali, or any other friend or colleague of mine, has said about religion. Now, uh, we all probably have our moments where we might seem arrogant, but the general tenor of what we've said and written has been not arrogant, but worried. I mean, there, there's an urgency that comes through in all our work because the situation on the ground is outrageous. It is just astonishing that we are living in a world where we have to spend any time at all thinking about this. My entire career on this point, I view as a, as a massive opportunity cost. I mean, really, it is insane to have to argue for the right for gays to marry in the United States in the year 2015. I mean, happily, we seem to be on the, on the verge of winning that battle, but It boggles the mind that this has to be argued for, much less the teaching of evolution in school, or the fact that anyone ever has to argue against the intrusion of an intelligent design into biology class. It's an outrage, and it's a massive forfeiture of time and energy, Uh, and it's it's totally understandable that many smart people just don't want to go near it because it is on some level, a waste of time. It's not to say that it's not useful. I think it's incredibly useful. I wouldn't do this if I didn't think it was important. But whenever I move on to a fundamentally different topic, which is just interesting, fun to think about, and useful to put out into the world, I feel a kind of fresh air coming to the room that I don't feel when I'm having to talk about Christianity or Islam and the obvious harms that these ideologies continue to manufacture moment by moment in the world. I mean, these these are engines of stupidity and division, and anything good you think is coming out of them can be had for better reasons elsewhere, and that should be obvious, but it isn't, and so I continue to talk about these things. But again, the attitude is is one of real concern and certainty on specific points. Yes, it is clear that evolution occurred. It's clear that every sentence that someone like Jerry Coyne has to speak in defense of evolution is galling. So, when, when Dawkins gets accused of being arrogant, this is, a, this is a trope that religious people resort to when they don't actually have an argument. Some of your critics like to paint you as a philosophically illiterate scientist. Please speak about your relationship to philosophy. Um, yeah, that's always an interesting one because I, I actually consider myself a philosopher, much to the consternation of these critics and no doubt some academic philosophers and graduate students. While I'm usually described as a scientist or neuroscientist and occasionally refer to myself this way, the truth is most of my work has been philosophical and my interest in the brain has always been philosophical. I was never thinking that I was going to cure Alzheimer's with my research. My, my, the, the focus of my research has been on the nature of human consciousness and human values and how our growing understanding of ourselves through science will change our conception of what we are as subjective creatures and change our view about uh, what is worth wanting in this world and how we should enshrine these values in public policy and public institutions. So it's in the philosophy of mind and in moral philosophy and metaethics thus far that I've tried to make a contribution. And I had just have taken a route through neuroscience, in part, to express those interests. And the truth is, I consider my deficits as an intellectual to be far more in the area of science than in philosophy at this point. There's just much more to know in science. There's much more to be wrong about, definitively. In philosophy, I feel like I have more or less all the tools I need. It's not to say I have read everything or even am aware of everything, uh, even in my areas of interest. But... I'm not continually having my ignorance pointed out to me by my critics in philosophy. This is true on the very philosophical topic of free will. Dan Dennett and I don't agree on free will. There's nothing Dan has said about our disagreement on this topic that has made me think that I have made elementary philosophical errors uh, to the contrary. Whereas in science, I can freely admit that I am ignorant of most of what is now well understood. There is such an explosion of knowledge about which one can be ignorant, about which one must be ignorant, given the speed with which it's accumulating. So while there's no boundary in principle between science and philosophy, which is to say that scientific questions can be viewed as philosophical and philosophical questions can be viewed as scientific depending on how one attempts to address them, the fields, are different and they require different tools and that's neither a strength nor a weakness of philosophy it's just you you do not require the same base of knowledge in order to arrive at sound philosophical positions or in order to detect the flaws in another philosopher's arguments so for better or worse I do consider myself a philosopher a neurophilosopher, a moral philosopher, a philosopher of mind because this is what I'm doing. I am philosophizing a lot of the time. And I consider my lack of a PhD in philosophy a non-issue. And I would consider someone's lack of a PhD in any discipline to which they're making a valid contribution a non-issue. There are physicists who don't have PhDs in physics, there are computer scientists who don't have graduate degrees of any kind. These are your intellectual credibility is based on the credibility of the work you produce. And there are many people with PhDs in philosophy who I think are doing terrible philosophy, who I think are wrong on almost any question they touch. So you're as good as your last sentence, as far as I'm concerned. And if your last sentence didn't make sense, well then you are fit to be pilloried by even a lowly freshman and a string of Nobel Prizes will not inoculate you against that embarrassment. And that's the way that that the boundary between knowledge and ignorance and authority and mere intellectual imposture should be policed. This connects actually to another question I I saw on Twitter, which I don't have in front of me, but it was something like, if you were going to criticize Sam Harris, what do you think the most valid criticism is intellectually? And uh, it relates to some very real deficits I have as a scientist and thinker. My mathematical background and, and computational background generally, uh, you know, computer science, is incredibly weak. That's a, you know, I often fantasize about dropping 90% of what I'm doing and going back and relearning mathematics from the ground up and computer science as well. This is the sort of thing where you, you worry that taking any significant amount of time to correct for your deficits is, in the big picture, a waste of time, that you should actually be simply honing your strengths and digging one or at most a few wells as deeply as possible, and let other people do the work that you're not competent to do. But I do fantasize about, in some basic sense, going back to school to fill in some of these gaps, and who knows, I may yet do that. So I have a variety of questions on a related theme here. I'm often attacked for taking quotes out of Scripture, out of the Quran in particular, but Scripture generally, taking them out of context and therefore misconstruing them or misrepresenting them, uh, misrepresenting their meaning, and yet I complain incessantly about the people who do this to me. Uh, Is that uh, fair? Well, I never do that in a way that I think misrepresents the context. I mean, that is, it's not that you can't take a quote out of context. That is what it is to offer a quotation of an author's work. You, you, otherwise, you have to take the full work. So there's nothing wrong with quoting people. But when you select a quote which is guaranteed to misrepresent the context, it's guaranteed to be misunderstood by readers who read only that quote, and you do this knowingly, and you do it against the protests of the author, then you're up to something intellectually disreputable uh, and unethical. When I take a quote out of the Quran that makes it seem like the Quran demonizes infidels, I do that because the Quran, on balance, demonizes infidels. That is absolutely the central, unambiguous message of the Quran. The central message of the Quran is not to have compassion for all the ignorant people in the world. It's a sustained expression of revulsion for unbelievers, and it recommends this attitude to all Muslims. You should hate the infidel, fear the infidel, not befriend the infidel. Above all, don't be an infidel, for then you will spend eternity in hellfire, and this punishment will be much deserved. To say that this message is divisive is to state an objective fact, and in no sense distorts the more global message of the Quran. Now, there are other messages in the Quran, there are other quotes that can be cherry-picked, which, in fact, do misrepresent its basic content. I think the, the, the more benign quotes there, unfortunately, are the more misleading ones. A quote like, there's no compulsion in religion, which Muslim apologists always trot out on occasions like this, does, in fact, misrepresent the central thrust of the Quran's message, which is, above all, get this right. You you have to believe in God, and in Muhammad as his prophet, and in the Quran as the perfect word. Otherwise, the worst possible fate awaits you. That is the central message of the Quran. So I am not aware of ever having misrepresented the context in how I have quoted from the Quran or any other scripture. And insofar as I have, and these errors are pointed out to me, I will be very quick to correct those errors. But of course, the same cannot be said of my critics. My critics, when they pull inflammatory quotations of mine out of context, are doing it for the express reason of misleading their readers about the context. I mean, the most egregious example of this recently is a quote that's being thrown around by the usual suspects, where I say that rape is perfectly natural. Right. And that, that quote is being used to suggest that I see no moral problem with rape. It's amazing that anyone could imagine that that is actually cashed out if you look at the context. Of course, I said that rape was natural in the very midst of making an argument that you cannot base notions of right and wrong and good and evil merely on what is natural. Because some of the worst things about us... Rape, tribal violence, etc., are perfectly natural. And no one would ever move from the observation that, that rape is a natural phenomenon, that it occurs in humans and orangutans and dolphins, to the claim that we shouldn't do everything we can to prevent rape and punish rapists in the civilized world. In fact, we're civilized to the degree that we do this. The other rape quote, as I said in an interview about 10 years ago, if I could wave a magic wand and, and rid the world of religion or rape, I would not hesitate to get rid of religion. Now, that's a provocative line, and I was aware that it was provocative at the time. I made it perfectly clear, though, in the interview just how harmful I think religion is. I was not in the least minimizing the harm of rape. I mean, first of all, if you want to understand my thinking here, just imagine how many rapes I ascribe to religion. Think of the child rape scandal in the Catholic Church. Think of all the rapes that are born of, quote, arranged marriage in the Muslim world. Think of the punitive rapes that happen in those cultures. Think of the use of rape as a weapon of war. Not because soldiers are just, just feel like raping people, but as a strategy to destroy a community given how taboo rape is in the community. This happened to Bosnian Muslims. So, you know, the Serbs were raping Bosnian Muslims strategically as a a tool of war simply because of how fully it would destroy the community once these women had to admit that they were raped and and many of them got pregnant. The stigma around rape I consider entirely born of religion in that culture uh, and, and many other cultures. Think of the honor killings that occur in the Muslim world as a result of a woman or girl getting raped. And then add on that balance everything else that is wrong with religion. All of the religious wars, all of the jihadist terrorism we see in our own lifetime, all of the future liabilities of people who are expecting an apocalypse, the resistance to life-saving medical research, the preaching of the sinfulness of condom use in sub-Saharan Africa, Where people are dying of AIDS. The the list of, of negative effects attributable to religion that include rape and worse is practically endless. And again, that is not at all to minimize the significance of rape. I think rape is just about the worst thing that happens. But that just about allows for many things that are worse. Crucifying children, as ISIS has done, is worse. Burying them alive is worse. So if you want to appreciate the intellectual dishonesty of my critics, please understand that these are people who are actively spreading the idea that I see no ethical problem with rape. And so when I complain about being quoted out of context, this is what I'm complaining about. I'm I'm complaining about the intentional use of usually accurate quotations to misrepresent a larger discussion. And again, this is not an accident. This is, the, it's, it's not that people like Reza Aslan and Glenn Greenwald and Max Blumenthal and Jenk Uger and Murtaza Hussein and uh, the rest of this now growing list of malicious critics, it's not that they don't understand what I'm saying in context. It's not that I'm that bad a writer, that I can't make my meaning clear. No. They view it as fair to pull misleading quotes, a practice which someone has dubbed quote mining, out of context for the purpose of defaming their author. And it should go without saying that this is not journalism, and it's not scholarship, and it's not ethical. But this is the sort of thing that happens, and there really is no defense against this. And pointing people back to the context doesn't work if people already find you such a revolting character based on how you've been successfully slimed, that they won't read you. And needless to say, the people who do this use your complaining about their behavior against you. So Cenk Yuger of the Young Turks, when he's criticized by his erstwhile fans for quoting me out of context and talking about my wanting to execute a nuclear first strike on the Muslim world, Uh, He says, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, everyone's always misrepresenting Sam Harris, and it hurts his feelings. This is Jenks' journalistic policy, with respect to me now, on the Young Turks. I think it would be fascinating, I don't know who the right opponent would be here, uh, somebody like Glenn Greenwald, to attempt to have a dialogue, the main agenda of which was to try to do a postmortem on how the conversation went this, this far and fully into the ditch. So the, the, the subtext of this conversation would be not an attempt to win the debate on one point or another, but to try to diagnose the problem of conversation across ideological lines. Why is it so hard to communicate effectively on this topic? Why does one side or the other get so fully hijacked uh, so that they can't even give a charitable reading, which is to say can't they can't even take the time to understand what is being said before they react to it. I mean, this is a massive problem in public discourse. And, you know, I have a, a front-row seat for this um, travesty every time I see the reaction to something that I've published. But I, it seems to me that it would be interesting with the right person to figure out how to have the conversation in such a way that polarization and bad faith are, are fundamentally overcome. But, I mean, perhaps I'm being uncharitable, but I, I don't think any of the more interesting interlocutors here or the, or consequential ones are up to it. It would be, a I think, a disaster. So um, put that in the pipe dream category of future projects. This brings me rather naturally to another question I just saw on Twitter. I'm worried you're spending too much time on defense. Have you ever considered completely ignoring misrepresentations? Well, yeah, you know, for for a very long time, that's what I did. You know, when Chris Hedges was spreading this lie about me that I advocate a nuclear first strike against the Muslim world and want to kill hundreds of millions of people, I ignored it because I felt that it was absolutely clear in context what I was saying, and I felt that by answering these crazy charges, it gave them more credibility, but I discovered when I finally started paying attention that this didn't work, that ignoring the misrepresentations just allowed them to flourish, and my silence on this issue was taken by many people as confirmation of the charges. The truth is, there's just no winning this game, because you know, as the question implies, The more time you spend defending yourself, the more boring you become, both to yourself and to those people who actually understand what your views are in the first place. So I I will now run the following experiment. I will not mention any of these people ever again. As I vowed never to mention the name of the serial plagiarist, pseudo-atheist, lunatic who has been trolling me on Twitter and was given a very prominent platform by Jenk and the other people at the Young Turks Network. Uh, and as far as I can tell, I've kept that vow, I am now extending this to Reza Aslan and Glenn Greenwald and Chris Hedges and all these other people who I have mentioned to your boredom and mine all too frequently. I will never mention any of these people again, and I issue this with a few caveats. If anything too consequential happens, uh, I may have to respond to it, whether on my behalf or on, on someone else's, but That aside, you will not hear another word from me about these people for the rest of our lives. Who argues against your position on religion? Honestly, that's an interesting question. Um, Well, it's certainly not the the liberal slash secular slash atheist apologists for faith, the accommodationists, the people who think that we're simply being arrogant or uncivil to criticize religion, and therefore want us to shut up without actually dealing with the substance of our arguments. I think the honest criticism comes from true believers, people who really believe that they have valid evidence for the truth of one or another religious doctrine. And now they're almost certainly wrong about that. Their notion of what constitutes valid evidence is in need of revision. But though there are people who are connecting the dots in an intellectually honest way albeit a flawed way and honestly arguing from that point of view. There are people who think their experience in prayer and the change in their lives born of it proves that Christianity for instance is true, that Jesus is the Son of God invisibly present in their lives changing their experience for the better, etc. I don't consider all claims of this sort dishonest. These are, some of them are confused. Some of them are using experience in a way to make claims about the cosmos that I think are illegitimate, but there's no intellectual dishonesty in this. Intellectual dishonesty is different from scientific ignorance or logical errors. Right? Intellectual dishonesty is when someone really should know better, where they clearly have the tools to use, but they're not using them, but they're using them in other contexts. Right. Someone like I don't know Francis Collins. You know, he he is being intellectually dishonest in how he's justifying his Christianity. The dishonesty here is just in his unwillingness to acknowledge the patently emotional basis for his views. He's attached to the consolation he gets from these views. He wants certain propositions to be true because of the way these truths make him feel. Okay, that that is the quintessence of a unscientific attitude. Motivated reasoning is a, is a problem. It is a way of failing to be in contact with reality. It's a way of fooling yourself. R- Richard Feynman's famous line is something like, science is the art of not fooling yourself, and, and you are the easiest person to fool. And every scientist has to know this about him or herself. You are the easiest one to fool. You have to get out of your own way in order to think clearly about the nature of reality. And what you must remove to think scientifically is a dogmatic commitment to maintaining certain beliefs despite the evidence against them or in the absence of compelling evidence or compelling reasons. So someone like Francis Collins has not done that. He's rebranded his wishful thinking as faith. And yet he's a scientist and he claims to square his religiosity with his science. So that that's, that's his intellectual dishonesty. The dishonesty I often see in non-believers is, is born of their fundamental skepticism that anyone actually believes anything. And especially when these doubts align with their political attitudes or political correctness, you get a very blinkered perspective. So you have feminists who are attacking Ion Hirsi Ali as a bigot, right? They're worried about the treatment of women in Silicon Valley. They are completely callous about Ayan's background or her present efforts to make life better for millions of women living in intolerable conditions because of the doctrine of Islam, because of political Islam, because of theocracy. Uh, So that's intellectual dishonesty, and it's more a liberal problem than a conservative one at this point, which depresses me no end. How often should we be aware of the illusion of free will? Should it serve a more reflective function rather than happen in real time? Well, for me, a direct awareness of the illusoriness of free will, the very clear sense that the notion of free will doesn't name anything in my experience, uh, this is more or less coincident with a, a moment of mindfulness or a moment of meditation where I'm clearly aware of how thoughts and intentions and desires and and their subsequent actions arise spontaneously. Something is not there a moment ago, and then suddenly it's there. Uh, And and all of one's mental life, even the most voluntary behavior, has this character when you look at it in a fine-grained way. But I think the most important understanding of it is reflective. Certainly the most important ethical implications are born of reflecting on this truth about us. It is just an understanding that people are operating on the basis of everything that has made them who they are, and that they are not agents in the deepest possible sense. This brings to mind an email I received recently, which revealed the sometimes surprising consequences of drilling down on these philosophical topics. This is the sort of response that is surprising and gratifying on a topic like free will, which Uh, would seem on its face to be purely of academic interest. So here's the email. Sometime in the fall of 2012, I read your book, Free Will. It positively impacted me and helped me cope with my mother's suicide differently. After her death, I felt the same way Christopher Hitchens felt about his mom, Yvonne, in the first chapter of Hitch 22. I wondered if in some way I could have thwarted my mom's death. Suicide, unlike other ways of dying, is odd to cope with. I'm tempted to say harder, but that's unfair. So far, all I've come up with is the perceived voluntary aspect of suicide, the feelings of rejection, abandonment, and guilt that follow, and the wish to tell her I loved her and to hear her say that she loved me too. No other book about suicide or depression has come close to helping me understand my mom and other people. Nothing has ever made me grapple with the difficult questions I've asked myself about the nature of the world. Nothing has ever made me feel more hopeful and subdued the feelings I mentioned above, like your book, Free Will. What I'm trying to say is thank you. You know that's again a, a total surprise I, when I when I wrote about free will I didn't think I was striking a tangent to this kind of emotional territory but there, there are many things like this where I can see that, that this is one of the consequences of thinking clearly on these sorts of topics and this project is not derivative of, of any criticism of religion per se this is just thinking about the nature of the human mind the nature of human behavior and trying to live with the consequences of reasoning honestly on those topics. Okay, well, apologies again for not getting to more of your questions. I am long-winded, as you no doubt know, and um, there are just so many of them. So please let me know if Q&A podcasts like this are useful to you. I won't do them if they're not, and you can do that on Twitter or by email. And uh, thanks again for listening. Until next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. You can leave reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can discuss it on your own blog or podcast. Or you can help fund it directly. And there are two ways you can do this. You can try a membership at Audible, the world's leading source of audiobooks, at audibletrial.com samharris Sam Harris. Or you can make a donation through my website at samharris.org donate.